This is Talking Beats. I'm Daniel Lelchuk, and I welcome you. Go ahead and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join us at Talking Beats Podcast on social media to keep the conversation going. On today's program, Canadian journalist and political commentator Jonathan Kay trained as a lawyer at Yale Law School. He has distinguished himself as a free and independent thinker through publications such as The New Republic, The New York Times, and The Literary Review of Canada. He's written a number of books, including The Volunteer, A Canadian's Secret Life in the Mossad, Among the Truthers, and Your Move, What Board Games Teach Us About Life. I wanted to speak to him because he ruffles feathers on both sides of the political aisle. He rejects tribalism, and he stands up to mob mentality. You're a social, cultural, political writer all rolled into one. I guess I would I would describe you as... Uh, I, I see you're writing a lot about Portland now. So before we go to Portland, just tell us, are you a real liberal? Is that term changing by the day, by the week? I think a lot of people in their politics are influenced more by their their personality type than they care to admit. And I've always been something of a contrarian. When I was at the National Post, which is a conservative Canadian newspaper, I was the in-house liberal. And then I became editor-in-chief at a small Canadian uh, arts magazine, which was very left of center, and I was the in-house conservative. And Quillette, I think, is a, a publication that really does defy political labels. I think a lot of publications say, oh, we defy political labels. I think Quillette might be one of the few that actually do. But we do attract a lot of conservatives because Quillette is a place for people who I think are in ideological flux and who feel ideologically homeless. And these days, a lot of conservatives feel that way because if they're not into Trump populism and they're put off by woke progressivism, they end up at a place like Quillette. And increasingly, a lot of liberals are like that too, classical liberals who don't have time for some of the more extreme postures of the social justice left. Uh, so, I mean, Quillette, its critics in particular would say that it's conservative. I'd say I'm slightly to the left of some of the positions at Quillette, uh, but not much, you know. But I think a lot of this goes to the fact that I am kind of a little bit contrarian. And if you put me in a room full of people of a certain ideology, I, I tend to immediately notice the, the hypocrisies or the false pieties of those people. And every group has that. Like, that's just, it's universal. I mean, I have my hypocrisies and false pieties. And, and then I, I notice them, and then I start writing about the contradictions within that ideology. Jonathan, that's just Jonathan K., if you have hypocrisies and false pieties, get the hell off my podcast, okay? It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's well, it's, I think every ideological movement starts out criticizing the, the flaws of what came before it. Like, I just... I was listening to this long podcast about the French Revolution and everything that the the revolutionaries said about the old royalists was right. Like their critique of it was right. And the same is true of many Marxists. I mean Marxist critique of capitalism, a lot of it is spot on. But then of course, as soon as people attain power, they they don't waste any time in 
putting into effect all of their own hypocrisies and and enriching themselves and seizing power for themselves under cynical auspices. It's an endless historical cycle, and this what we're experiencing now is just one manifestation of it. It's interesting what you mentioned before about Quillette, about the the fact that it defies uh, a political label. And I recently had Charlie Sykes on this podcast, and, and I asked him about the bulwark, and he said the same thing. He, he said, well, I personally, Charlie Sykes, am a, am a conservative, but the, the bulwark grew out of a need to have a space for free thought. I said, what is it? He said, it's, it's a space for, for free thought. And I guess as an extension, free speech. And, and it sounds like the, the goal of Quillette is something similar, that there, there could be liberal and there could be conservative views there, but uh, that there's not attempts at censorship like many places. I think that if you want to look for the most vibrant forms of free thought and free speech, it's always going to be on the side that's losing the culture war. So during the 80s, when you had the rise of the religious right, and you had Ronald Reagan, who was president of the United States at the time, and there was a lot of triumphalism on the conservative side of the spectrum, many of the most interesting voices you heard were coming from the left, because they were trying to reinvent what it meant to be a leftist. And this was especially true later on after the Berlin Wall fell and Marxism was discredited. Uh, again, you, you had leftists looking around trying to figure, you know, what does it mean to be a post-Marxist? What does it mean to be a progressive, as we would now call it? What does it mean to be a liberal in this area? And I think right now, because the the left side of the spectrum has won the culture war so convincingly on so many fronts, it's always the dissidents who have the richer, more vibrant ideological community and who have more ideological diversity because they don't have the levers of power necessary to suppress dissent. And they have to pitch a broader tent because if you're looking to overturn the status quo, you have to be flexible in terms of where you get your support. And I think you see that at Quillette. A lot of the people I edit at Quillette, a lot of the writers are feminists and LGB supporters. And I mean, some of them, you know, Megan Murphy is somebody who has described herself as, as a radical feminist. I've had edited several radical feminists because these are people who, although they're, they're avowed leftists, they are also extremely critical of some of the brittleness and dogmatism that they see among their former friends and allies. As a result, they, they make common cause with conservatives because to a large extent, as I said, it's, it's conservatives who have to pitch a broader tent, especially conservatives who are outside the populist Trumpian wing of conservatism, which isn't even conservative. It's essentially uh, a tribal, it's, an, it's a tribalistic organizing principle for Donald Trump's will to power. It's not even, I don't even consider it really a conservative impulse. Dig down a little more, Jonathan Kay. What do you mean in broad terms, and then you can get more specific as you go on, but but zoom out a little. What do you mean by culture war, and w what do you mean by the statement the left has been winning convincingly at a culture war? I explain a little. So I'd go back to what I know, which is the late 90s and the 2000s when I began my career in journalism, and we spent a lot of time during that era writing about issues like capital punishment 
and abortion and gay rights, you know, the legitimacy of the welfare state. Uh, here in Canada, uh, socialized medicine, as it's called in the United States. Here we call it uh, universal health care. On all those issues, on every issue I just named, the, the left, at least here in Canada and in most OECD countries, has decisively won. And so a lot of the issues that used to be the battleground for policy debates, they're not really battlegrounds anymore. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, it was completely legitimate in Canada to argue about things like gay marriage. There's no argument about that anymore. And by the way, I, I'm, I support gay marriage. I, I, didn't, I don't necessarily think the people who opposed it were all bigots, but these debates, for now at least, are dead and gone. And as a result, there's a certain triumphalism on the left, which manifested itself in a snuffing out of dissent, looking for people who aren't tweeting the right thing or who don't have exactly the right kind of doctrinaire approach to, to these issues. Be because they've won the big battles, they can afford to fight the small battles. Uh, and you're seeing that to a certain extent, like in all kinds of sort of uh, microcosms. So, you know, take uh, LGBT politics, uh, you know, the broad coalitions within the LGBT community that fought for basic things like, you know, the right to be free of discrimination and you know, the right to marriage and that sort of thing. Those battles were largely won. And as a result, you've seen a fracturing into more militant cliques that are fighting things that don't always strike me as basic rights, but seem as, as more contentious extrapolations of existing rights. And often their main point of attack isn't against conservatives, because conservatives often have backed off from these issues because they they lost the broader culture war. And in many cases, they they see that they were on the wrong side of that culture war. But the the main point of attack is against fellow liberals, fellow leftists, fellow progressives who are seen as offside on some of the more militant postures about gender and sex. And as a result, there's just much more breathing room among conservatives or even centrists or disaffected classical liberals. I think we're now in, a, in an era where a lot of these things defy categorization, according to traditional labels, there's just, there's more breathing room. That's, that's why it's so much fun to work at Quillette and why people who work at uh, legacy outlets, often they, they find the environment very stifling. I mean, the New York Times is, is such a prestigious outlet, but you talk to people who work at the New York Times and, you know, they're terrified that, you know, they tweet the wrong thing and their, their own colleagues are going to come mob them. So what happened to Barry Weiss? What's your, what's your take? Uh, obviously that this sounds very similar to what you've just described. What do you, what do you see there as, as so, em emblematic yeah. somehow? So I know Barry. I interviewed her for the Quillette podcast. I read her book. I've followed her, her work in the New York Times. And Barry Weiss, in many ways, is like a typical, fairly liberal on most issues, highly educated New York Jew. Um, you know, I've written for Commentary Magazine, which is a Jewish magazine in, based in New York. And I, you know, I've worked in New York and I, I kind of know the Jewish intellectual subculture in that city reasonably well. And, you know, <laughs> uh, 10 years ago, five years ago, someone like her, she wouldn't be, really be that controversial a figure. But we now live in an era where to be heterodox on any issue uh, is seen as uh, a mark of shame. Uh, you know, 
the mark of an extremist is that they judge you by your heresies, not by the bulk of your opinions. So if you're a cultist or a religious extremist or an ideological extremist, it doesn't matter if they agree with you on 99 out of 100 issues. On that 100th issue, if they disagree with you, you're as good as dead to them. And I think there were a few issues that that Barry Weiss disagreed with her colleagues on. And as a result, there was, you know, she I think she stated this very eloquently in a, a sort of a cri de coeur that she wrote uh, on her own website a couple of weeks ago, where she just said it's become intolerable. Um, you know, you're going to war every day against your own colleagues, despite newsroom policies that officially prohibit uh, social media bashing of one another on on public channels, and and she was sick of it. And you know, I've I've met her. It's not like she's some rabid conservative. Not that there's anything wrong with being a conservative, but she's she's not like that at all. She's um, she's a very thoughtful, probably on most issues, left of center person who just was courageous enough to speak her mind. And like everybody who speaks her mind, there's going to be issues where people around you take a, a different view. As recently as a few years ago, this was just seen as a normal state of affairs on the left. It's, it's no longer seen as a normal state of affairs. How many more Barry Weisses do you think are at the New York Times or other big organizations? How many that we haven't heard of necessarily that haven't resigned and written on their personal website? But this must be a story that's happening right now in, in, your, in your local newsroom. Well, it's not just in, in the media. Uh, it's also in academia. Uh, I would suggest that listeners have a read of a piece that my Quillette colleague, Colin Wright, that's Wright with a W, uh, he wrote for Quillette a few weeks ago. He's now our managing editor. He's an evolutionary biologist, uh, earned his PhD. He was most recently a postdoc at Penn State. And he describes a situation in the sciences. And we're not talking about, you know, uh, gender studies at Middlebury College or anything like that. You know, we're talking about uh, hard sciences, health sciences. I've even heard of it happening in engineering and physics and that sort of thing. Where, you know, unless you say that black is white and white is black on certain issues, uh, especially relating to gender... Uh, you can lose your job. You can lose your opportunity to even get a foothold in the profession. And that's really unsettling because, you know, these are people who are conducting peer-reviewed research and are editing publications like Nature and Science. And, and if they're people with real scientific credentials are feeling pressure to deny reality on ideological grounds... That, to me, is an even more serious problem than our journalistic community being corrupted by these kind of ideological cults. Okay, Jonathan Kate, you brought us to universities. So first, I want you to talk about a recent posting for English professor openings at University of British Columbia. Uh, you posted about it on your Twitter. Uh, you made some interesting comments. Uh, what's, what do you see happening here? English department, we're talking in Canada, the radicalization of the academy is more advanced than in the United States because we went through our really fervid social panic when it came to this sort of issue back in 2017 because that was the 150th birthday of Canada, which was 
formed in 1867. And amid all of these celebrations, there were a lot of indigenous groups who said, wait a sec, we're not here to celebrate the creation of Canada because when Canada was created, this to us was a symbol of extinguishing our own sovereignty. And I completely understand why they wouldn't want to celebrate Canada. You saw something similar in the United States back in 1776, 1976, the 200th birthday. I, I was I was only eight years old at the time, but I do remember a little bit of the controversy about that. And in Canada, spring 2017, there was a lot of talk about neocolonialism and decolonizing our thought and for a few months especially, it really had an atmosphere of social panic somewhat akin to what you saw on social media in June and July 2020 surrounding Black Lives Matter, which is to say that there was an important kernel of truth at the center of the protests, but then it was extrapolated in this way that just became a kind of witch hunt on social media. So I I saw firsthand what was happening, and as a result of that, Universities in particular, since then, have been on this mission to decolonize, that's the word of the day, decolonize their institutions, which often boils down to affirmative action hiring programs, mandatory course requirements, diversity training. I mean, I don't think your listeners need to know the laundry list because this is happening on American campuses now and and has been for a couple of years. But the result is that every department in every university, there's pressure on it to align itself ideologically with these doctrines, despite the fact that in some cases, (laughs) these doctrines, again, decolonization, um, anti-racism, stuff like that, as important as they are to their adherents, they don't really apply in any concrete way to, to the material they're being presented. At the University of British Columbia, the English department, I mean, the whole idea of speaking English is itself a form of, I guess you could say, colonialization, because there's, you know, this rich uh, assortment of indigenous, indigenous languages, many of which are, are endangered now in Canada. But the English department itself, despite the fact it's it's hiring people to teach things like, you know, Shakespeare and uh, Chaucer and stuff like that. You know, everyone they're, they're hiring now is supposed to submit these statements about how they're going to make the place more diverse, their commitment diversity. And if you look at the job postings, they're written in this language that is just completely removed from the study of, of English as a discipline. Yeah, you know, this... Here's the job advertisement. <clears throat> I'll, I'll read you a little bit of it. This is from UBC Faculty of Arts. This is their posting for three assistant or associate professors. Uh, and this is the second paragraph uh, after they got rid of some of the boilerplate. The Department of English has a newly revised curriculum with courses on transnational networks, diaspora and migration studies, indigenous studies, critical race studies, anti-slash-d-slash-post-colonial studies, global south connections world literatures environmental studies and gender studies all in conjunction with robust historical curriculum this appointment may also contribute to a number of curricular and research initiatives uh, and it goes on in that vein uh and then you mean all of that is what shakespeare and chaucer play well (laughs) look it's possible to interpret any text through that i mean it's possible to read you know othello 
and and have a lot to say about that sort of stuff. But I think the problem for an applicant to that job is, I mean, one problem is that it, every single department on campus is is looking for those ideological components. And so at the end of the day, every department is going to be so invested in these tangents to their core material that that becomes the the main course, whether you're studying history or politics or English, you know, these ingredients, which once were seen as a kind of decolonial flavoring to the underlying source material. Now that's the main course. That's doesn't <laughs> even, even in hard sciences, a lot of this material people are reading has to be flavored with those sort of stuff. But then of course you also have to add in a statement of teaching philosophy, a diversity statement referring to all of the above, a sample of ongoing research, preferably in the form of published material, evidence of teaching effectiveness, uh, showing your commitment to diversity, it's hard not to interpret this as essentially an ideological litmus test with supporting biographical information and a, a kind of scrapbook showing how diverse you are. And I kind of wish they would just be more forthright and say, look, we want to hire black and indigenous people. I mean, that's ultimately what they want. They want to hire black and indigenous people. And if they said that, I'm not sure... A lot of I wouldn't I'm not sure I would object because it's true that a lot of these universities it is mostly older white people who are in the teaching staff because those are the people who were hired at the latter end of the Cold War period it was mostly white people but they don't want to come out and say hey look this is about affirmative action so instead they give us two thousand words of gibberish and the result is that they're held to account for that gibberish so when students show up at class instead of actually reading English texts, they're going to be getting a lot of ideological lectures that they could have just got from, you know, social media or YouTube videos, because everyone's drinking from the same bathwater these days, thanks to the universalizing effects of social media, uh, even in, in the academy. And there's just less and less reason for people to go and get these degrees. Okay, so Jonathan Kate, let me bring you to a very well-known campus College, Amherst College in Massachusetts, one of the most well-respected liberal arts schools in the country and an, an amazing institution. And I want to read you there. There is a petition for many changes on the Amherst campus, as there are petitions at universities all over the states, or probably all over the world. And I want to read you part of an email that the president of Amherst College wrote in response. Now, one of the things that is demanded in the petition is the changing of the name of the Amherst College Library, which is named after the great New England poet Robert Frost. Apparently, Frost was a great racist, which was unknown up until now. The president wrote in a, a widely disseminated email. I'm, I'm going to quote here a part that I, I think will strike you to the core. I, I hope it does. <laughs> and it's this. Statement of Academic and Expressive Freedom. The faculty will re-examine the Statement of Academic and Expressive Freedom at its meetings in fall 2020. But I'll put it another way. When I had on the Associate Dean, Associate Provost, and uh, Professor of Jurisprudence on here, he's a death penalty expert, I, I, I read him that line. I said, what message does it send when the president of your institution says uh, we're going to be re-examining academic and expressive freedom. He said, 
very defensively, uh, Professor Serrett, he said, it sends a great message. And my students are not snowflakes. They're tough people. And I said, I, I hadn't called your students snowflakes whatsoever. I was simply asking, what message does this quote send? Jonathan Kay, what message does it send? The message that it sends to me, in conjunction with what he told you about his students, I, I actually agree that students often aren't snowflakes. And one of the things you often see is that it's often school administrators who are leading the most extreme form of this movement as opposed to the students themselves. Because the administrators want to be seen as as heroes when it comes to anti-racism and decolonialization and, and you know, critical race theory and all that sort of thing. And often the students, especially now, because students tend to be contrarian, and having been fed a lot of this stuff in high school, a lot of the young people you meet, they <laughs> they have a healthy sense of dissent against a lot of this woke stuff. And often the wokest people you find on campus are like 50 and 60-year-old white men and white women who look like me, who are so terrified of being accused of insensitivity or racism that they are spouting the most dogmatic form of progressive doctrine of anybody. Like, they they will alienate students of color who are often there just to learn with their off-putting sermons. And you saw this actually at Oberlin College, which is another elite liberal college, where it was the staff that, at least, at least some of the staff, that was actually encouraging students to go boycott and protest a local bakery that had been defamed as racist because of the arrest there of students who had been accused of, of robbing uh, This place. is a famous story, yes. Was this a couple of years ago or something like that? This was is recently, but... Reason, okay, then it's an, it, it happened again. Well, no, no. So the recent news is that the owners of the bakery won a massive ten-figure, uh, sorry, not ten-figure, eight-figure lawsuit against the against the college for for defamation. I forget it was something like thirty, forty million. I forget what it was. I think it or stepped down to ten million, but it was this huge. Uh, legal victory for the owners of the bakery. It was this local business that had been around for generations and school officials, this was all proven, school officials had actually encouraged students to go out and protest this place and claim that the place was racist. The whole thing was nonsense. And this was school officials doing this. I think it was, uh, I think the dean of students might have been involved. Like it was a complete scandal. And again, <laughs> These are the, this is supposed to be the adults in the room. We've had articles in Quillette about this. Not all of this has to do with ideology. A lot of this has to do with overstaffing at universities and colleges. Every time there's any kind of scandal, the first thing the university does is it adds a new office, it adds a new secretariat, it adds brings in assistant deans and provosts, new diversity staff. I think there was a study, University of Michigan, Think, forget if it was Michigan or Michigan State, has something like a hundred people in its diversity office. These people need something to do. They set up 1-800 lines. They set up all kinds of monitoring groups to sniff out any kind of indication of racism. You set up an apparatus that is, as with any bureaucracy, it's going to find evidence of the problem it was set up to to fight. And you're seeing this on campuses 
all across North America. And, and by the way, there, sometimes there is real racism. I mean, students can be racist. Everyone can be racist sometimes. It's not as if it's an imaginary problem. But you now have such an enormous bureaucracy meant to fight it on campus that the the cure has become worse than the disease in many cases. We've seen this, you know, with Title IX cases and stuff. Uh, it's a real problem. And the other thing is that, <laughs> you know, at a place like Oberlin or Amherst, you know, all of these colleges, you know, I've I've been to these places. I you know, I went to Yale Law School. I've periodically gone to speak at Bard College. Uh, it was a beautiful little college uh, up in New York, New York State. And you're just surrounded by smart, rich people. And they're smart, rich, well-intentioned people who are just desperate to man the barricades in the fight for racial justice. The problem is there's no barricades around them. Like, they are in these beautiful, bucolic, uh, idyllic, <laughs> quasi-pastoral, sun-dappled little college towns where the kids are paying fifty or 60000 a year for tuition. And it drives them nuts because they want to be on the barricades. They have this revolutionary fervor to fight racism. And they're frustrated by the fact that they're in this privileged class and they feel like hypocrites. And so they will latch on to the most ludicrous, small-scale, symbolic struggles as a means to give some venting to their well-intentioned class warfare rage. So if someone says, sign this petition because we have to get this statue removed from campus or we have to rename the library because of something that happened in the 18th century or whatnot, that becomes the most important thing in their life. And, you know, they'll compose lengthy Facebook manifestos about it and they'll tweet endlessly about it and they'll create WhatsApp groups about it. Even though the issue itself is completely meaningless, it won't change the life of anybody if you change the name of the library or whatever. But it gives them a sense of purpose. And to be fair, like it's a well-intentioned thing. You know, uh, after 9-11, I remember people would, you know, they'd wave little American flags from their cars or they'd bake apple pies in solidarity with the EMS workers who were risking their life to save people at the World Trade Center site. Like, this is the way human nature is. We, we're desperate to show that we're on the right side of the big struggles in our society. And sometimes this leads us to do ludicrous or even counterproductive things. And what you see on these campuses, I think, is part of that. Jonathan Kay, step back for a minute. You chronicle, I, I would call you a chronicler. So, so you're chronicling right now. And, and obviously Twitter, you know, is a place where we're very specific things of the moment get posted. But but step back and, and, and put this into a little context. What do you see happening in the next two months, six months, year? It depends a lot on who wins the election in November. But what tends to happen is that people become radicalized based on threats. And this will be, this, this is, is going to sound lofty and pretentious, but I'm going to go back to the French Revolution. And, you know, the French Revolution really picked up in terms of the terror in, in, in 1793 at a time when the people in France saw conspiracies everywhere. They thought the Austrians and the Prussians were going to come take over France. There were uprisings, you know, in Bordeaux and Lyon and Marseille and the Vendée. And so there was this climate of fear and paranoia. And that's when Robespierre uh, and, and the other Republican dictators, that's when they were able to, to ram through a lot of their machinery of, of dictatorship. 
I don't think the United States or Canada is, is a dictatorship, but I do think, by way of analogy, that when Trump got elected and took power in 2016, there were a lot of progressives who, and I think to some extent I was one of them, who said, oh my God, <laughs> the enemy is so much closer than we thought. Uh, you know, the Prussians are about to take over Paris. This is the hour we all must rise to the occasion and you're either with us or against us. And you saw a lot of sort of this Manichaean tribalism online that a lot of it like happened really suddenly after Trump got elected because people, liberals were, were shocked that they were living in a society where some guy like this could be, could become president. And I know this because I had friends who were liberals who I could have all kinds of intelligent and freewheeling conversations with. And in some cases, I totally agree with them. I, like I said, I'm pretty liberal on most issues. But then as soon as Trump got elected, even by, you know, late 2016, 2017, it became very difficult to have conversations with these people because they were so freaked out by Trump. You know, I don't want to say, oh, they had Trump derangement syndrome because that's a term of abuse, and it suggests that any opposition to Trump is a form of derangement. I don't agree with that. I don't want to say that they had some kind of clinical syndrome, but they became so rigid and so uncompromising in their mindset that you had to agree with them on, you know, on all 47 of their opinions about politics, or you were a, a sellout. So, you know, you were a Trumpist, if you, if you disagreed on anything. And that's when you saw a lot of friendships start to dissolve and you saw a lot tribalism start to increase on social media. And Trump was himself was a huge part of it. He, you know, he often lied and he, I believe he is a racist and he said horrible, stupid things, which were designed to stir up exactly this kind of tribalistic mentality. Both sides went in for it hard. I saw intelligent conservatives become just mindlessly parroting Trump propaganda. And I saw liberals whom I respected become completely radicalized in the other direction. And I've lost friendships over this on both sides. And it's, it's been a very sad thing to behold. This is a way of backending to the answer to your question. If Biden and, and, and Harris win in November, that state of siege will be lifted. It'll be analogous maybe to, you know, the French victories and so, like a pretentious analogy in 1794, when, you know, the French armies were romping through Belgium and a lot of Robespierre's enemies were like, why are we still living in a dictatorship? France is ascendant. We can afford to no longer live in this revolutionary dictatorship. And people became, people started to, to crave uh, a return to normal. And I think if Biden wins, you're going to see progressives in a less doctrinaire way, they're not going to feel so under siege. You're going to see a more reasonable climate on the left. There's going to be less cancel culture. Uh, there's going to be less extremist posturing, like this this idea that we have to abolish the police. I mean, what an idiotic idea. No, no that's it's just it's a crazy nonsensical idea that is just an outgrowth of, of an extremist form of politics. Uh, in the same way that, uh, you know, men can become women or vice versa simply by an act of affirmation in a way that will give them access to, to bathrooms and prisons and locker rooms in, in any way they choose. I also find that a radical position. 
there are a lot of these radical positions that I think will become a lot less popular once the state of ideological siege is lifted if Biden wins the election. First of all, Jonathan K., just to point a word you've used a few times, pretentious, I don't find making a reference to history pretentious. And <laughs> I think maybe you're you're falling into a, a trap that, that you don't want to fall into. I, I don't think you should have to justify a reference to the French Revolution uh, as, well, a, a, excuse <laughs> me for being pretentious while I make a historical reference. So, well, so please. That's <laughs> kind of, okay, but it's, it's, it's kind of you to... To, to say that, but I also, maybe not just pretentious, but extreme in the sense that, you know, hundreds of thousands of people died during the period between 1789 and 1794 in France and, and in neighboring countries as a result of, of that upheaval. And I always am skeptical when people say, oh, this is just like the gulags, or this is just like the communist revolution, or it's just like you know, and they name some historical event where there was like years and years of apocalyptic suffering. And I, you know, I always try and remind people, it says, look, as much as we might hate cancel culture, you know, these professors and journalists who are losing their jobs, <laughs> you know, they're not being killed, right? Uh, they're not being thrown into gulags. This actually does happen in other countries, thankfully not in Canada, the United States. So, so I try and always couch my historical metaphors in a way that I say, look, it's, this is this is a grandiose metaphor I'm offering. Take it for what it's worth. <laughs> and so maybe I shouldn't apologize for using those metaphors, but it's it's part of my instinct. Okay, so Jonathan Kay, uh, I, I I would never call anybody's choice of music pretentious, no matter what they say. I don't believe that exists. Uh, so so you know you can't get off my podcast, Talking Beats. Uh, w without talking a little bit about music, I, I, I twist everybody's arm, even if they don't want to, because music is the great unifier. If if there is anything, it, you you could argue maybe food, but probably even more so music. So, w what do you like to listen to? It's weird. There was this period in my life when music was one of the just the most important things that that existed. Like I, I remember coming home and from school, and I would listen to my you know. Jesus and Mary Chain and uh, Bauhaus and Love and Rockets, uh, the Smiths. So I'm, I'm dating myself. Anybody who's of maybe over 40 or 50 years old will will know exactly which historical period I'm referring it's to. It's so funny you just said the Smiths because I just, I don't know how old you are, but I, I have an idea and I had someone on recently who, who said the same exact thing. He goes, the Smiths, and then he paused. He said, I'm really dating myself here. I, I don't know what it is about the Smiths that... That caused people to say they're dating themselves. I happen to be quite a bit younger than you, and I like the Smiths. I'm a, I describe myself as a middle-aged millennial. I, I love the Smiths, and I, I also love Handel, you know, who was born in 1685. So, and ev everything in between. <laughs> right. Well, I don't. I don't have the. Um, I don't have the Handel side of things, but in the in the mid to late 80s, I mean, I think I was like a lot of kids, uh, where I just I was I was desperately looking for an identity. And I was looking for a sense of tribe. And I happened to find it in the, the disaffected white music of, of Britain. You know, I, it, was, it, was, it was Jesus and Mary Chain. Uh, it was, you know, the beautiful South. Uh, it was also art, art house bands from the United States. Pixies. It was Talking Heads. It was Smashing Pumpkins. Roxy music, the new romantic uh, movement. These were were band, you know, the Jam, uh, House Martins, and they created this sort of 
sonic soundscape of that spoke to me a lot of it was about the sort of bleak english or maybe american post-industrial world where there was a lot of empty towns and a lot of rootlessness and a lot of casting about for some kind of understanding of the society people were living in and and as a teenager, you're constantly looking for a, a sort of language or a justification for the ennui that you just naturally feel as, as a 17-year-old. And so you could listen to, to Morrissey, uh, you know, singing about bleak northern towns, you know, every day like Sunday. And it's like, oh, yeah, I totally get that. And he's talking about towns you've never been to, but there's just something about it that, that speaks to you. I remember listening to The The, which is uh, Matt Johnson. And, um, you know, he had some hits, always very bleak. It was like Uncertain Smile and Perfect and This Is The Day. And, and, and he wrote about like this mental anguish that he was obviously going through. And even though I wasn't, I didn't suffer from depression or anything like that, but a lot of it just like resonated with me. And it, it gave me this kind of vocabulary and sense that I wasn't alone in the world because I was always this introverted person. And that, as I said, listening to those songs, it was just one of the most important things in the world to me. And, and if you had told me that when I was 40 or 50 years old that I wouldn't really be listening to music and I'd just be listening to podcasts about the French and American revolutions, I would have thought you were crazy. I was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to be listening to music six hours a day for the rest of my life. But then I guess around the time I was in my mid to late 20s, I just kind of stopped listening to music. And I started listening to music again now because I spend half my day driving my kids all over Toronto and they're always playing their music, a lot of which I like. Um, but this is kind of the first time I've ever had music back in my life since I was in law school. Let me recommend to you that you put on a recording of a Beethoven symphony as you're driving your kids and uh, see how you like it. I, I have a feeling you'll like it more than you may think. You don't need to know anything about it or have grown up with it to... Uh, to love a music as great as a Beethoven symphony. You're no doubt right, but kids are crazy. Like, <laughs> um, so I, my 16-year-old, she likes country and Western music, or what she calls country and Western music. It's sort of like pop country, like Taylor Swift type stuff. And it's like, okay, you know, a lot of it doesn't sound that different from what was on Top 40 radio uh, in the 90s. Like, it's, I don't think music has evolved that much in the last couple of decades. But, but then I'll play, like, I put on, <laughs> I put on Chemical Brothers' Exit Planet Dust, which is just like this classic te techno album from, I think it was 1995. And it's just, you know, it, it's sort of an antiquated form of techno. It's from 25 years ago, but it's it's not that different from a lot of dance music you hear in clubs now. And I remember my 16-year-old and my 14-year-old were listening to it, like, with this horrified look on their face. It's like, how could you listen to this garbage? And then they say, here, here's some real music. And then they put on some of their own sort of dance techno stuff. It was, like, very similar. And it's, you can't debate it. Like, you, I, I don't know enough about music to, like, analyze the tempo and show how the two are similar. But I think just in their mind, the fact that I had put it on, it was like I might as well have been putting on, like, some big band album from, you know, 100 years ago. Like, they just, it was dad's music. And so it must be crap. 
And whether I put on Beethoven or Chemical Brothers, it would it's just to them it would be the same okay, thing. Okay, well, I think there's still hope, but who knows, maybe they'll wake up tomorrow and say, yeah, they, they, they <laughs> their next birthday party, they want you to hire a string quartet to come to the house and play Mozart uh, for three hours. It could it be. It could be. <laughs> it could be. Or, or I think my revenge will be like when they have their own kids and they play Lady Gaga and their kids are like, oh my God, you know, what is this garbage? It's, I think this is generational to some extent. But yeah, I'm sure a lot of it, uh, a lot of kids who become classical music enthusiasts, I think it probably happens very suddenly. I think, uh, I, I have no idea how, how you got the fever for it, but, um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure it always has to come through the parents. It might just come through random experiences. I think that's true. I, I wonder uh, to bring us back to a place tie things up Jonathan K you 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 sort of said what you're optimistic about if if there's anything else you are then then let us know what but what are you pessimistic about you you paint a fairly rosy picture in a way rosier than I thought you would which which is fine and and nice what are you worried about I'm worried about I think what a lot of people are worried about is the long-term effects of social media because I think if if Trump loses the election and the Democrats Democrats win you, you might see some a short-term restoration of, of a saner kind of political discourse in the United States. If By the way, if Trump wins this election or if there's some kind of endless legal battle over it, things could just get worse. So I don't, you know, I, I sketched out an optimistic scenario, um, but that's by no means, that's by no means the only scenario. The thing I'm worried about in the long term is, is, is social media because even if... Trump loses the election, we still have this environment where people are getting their news on this. It's, it's junk food. And, and I do it too. And I serve up junk food. I mean, the reason I get new followers on my Twitter account, it's not because I'm doing deep dives into the latest Brookings report on income inequality. It's because I say something funny about politics or a cancel culture or whatnot. And all the incentives for public figures are to be funny and respond quickly and to take cutting jabs at the other side and to gain tribal followings because the way to get retweets and likes is to have a tribe. And even people say, oh, I'm non-tribal. Like over time, you'll see that if, if they're good at what they do, they will gain tribal followings. And Twitter, especially, is essentially an organizing tool for tribes. And once you have a tribe, you, you tend to play into it. And by the way, you saw this even before Twitter. You saw some of the most popular columnists in journalism on the left and the right. One of the ways their columns got ruined is they started to just preach to the choir. And they started to get fan mail from their, their readers. And they just started to, give, to write different versions of the same column because they thought, well, that's what people like. You know, you come to McDonald's, you expect a hamburger or chicken nuggets. You know, you're not looking for, for tofu. This happened, you saw this happened in, in isolated incidents with certain columnists in the 90s when I started journalism. It now just happens with everybody because if you're popular, it means you're on social media. If you're on social media, it means you're getting positive reinforcement. It means you're creating a tribe and people are just, they're self-segregating into tribal silos. And I don't see that going away. And I don't know what the solution to that is. And it doesn't matter who wins the election in November. In terms of communication and political organization and ideological radicalization, that is the challenge we have to confront. And again, coming back to my own hypocrisies and false pieties, I am part of the problem because this, <laughs> this is how I spend part of my day 
is 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 tweeting stuff like this how do we get out of this i don't know uh, especially since the the public figures we're looking to to guide us out of it you know they're the worst offenders so that's the big problem and that's that's one of the reasons i am pessimistic about the world of ideas jonathan k uh, if you ever have ideas how to solve it or anything else i welcome you back here anytime <laughs> okay well i'll tell the world because i i, <laughs> I figured out how to solve it and it is as follows that, that'll be my next my next appearance i like it and i thank you so much thank you you've been listening to talking beats with daniel lalchuk i hope you'll subscribe and leave a review on apple spotify or anywhere you get your podcasts the original theme music for this program is by ronald markham the content coordinator is nathaniel mose doug christian is the executive producer. I'm Daniel Lelchuk. See you next time.